This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Abraham is a central figure, not only in Genesis and the Old Testament broadly, but in the New Testament as well. God called him from Ur of the Chaldees, gave him new life, faith in Christ, and through faith alone, imputed to him the righteousness of Christ, whereby he was justified. He's a central figure in the New Testament also. His name occurs 70 times in the New Testament. About him, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Indeed, much of John 8 is an argument between Jesus and the Jews over the proper interpretation of the life and faith of Father Abraham. Preaching from Solomon's porch in the temple, he addressed the Jews and called them to faith in Jesus, in whom Abraham believed. Stephen appealed to Abraham as a Christian, looking forward to the Incarnation. In Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham was justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is the father of all believers in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, all who believe in Jesus. In Galatians 3, he makes the case that the Abrahamic covenant was before the Mosaic and permanent, and the Mosaic was an addendum that made no fundamental change to the covenant of grace. Hebrews chapters 6 and 11 say that Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, and even that he was prepared to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice because he believed and was looking forward to the bodily resurrection. So we're used to thinking about Abraham as a believer, but what about Abraham as an example of wisdom and foolishness? In 1 Corinthians 10 and in Jude, Scripture says that all these stories were given to us for instruction as an example, and there is much in the life of Abraham to instruct us about wisdom. This is Season 6 of Office Hours, and our theme is to know wisdom. And here to help us think through the life of Abraham as a pattern of wisdom and foolishness is Dr. Joshua Vinnie, Assistant Professor of Hebrew and Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. Hi, Josh, and welcome back to Office Hours. Good to be here, Scott. So we're talking about wisdom this season, and you're an Old Testament prof, and so you must give a lot of thought, or at least more thought than most of us do, to what wisdom means in the Bible, because it's an idea that comes up an awful lot. I think of it especially when uh, Brian Estelle's on sabbatical, and I need to cover in his Psalms and Wisdom class, which I've been doing this past uh, semester. Oh, great. So the timing is working out well. Definitely, definitely. All right. So what is your working definition of wisdom? My working definition is the art of living well. Okay. As you define wisdom, is that a universal thing or is that particular to believers? That, I would say, is a particular. Now, part of it is what we all mean by well. So to take a step back, you need to make a distinction between what a word means and the concept that we give to a body of literature, that it engages and gives a greater specificity to. So if you asked me my definition of wisdom in the most basic sense, I could probably say something more like it is the ability to succeed at your goals. And so then the issue then is uh, what are those goals? And so when you make it the art of living well, ultimately, what does it mean to live well as a Christian? Then you can see how it's specifically something that, you know, I think Proverbs builds up its definition of wisdom. But you could also do it in a more general sense to the world as a whole with a more relative sense of what it means to live well. 
It's interesting that you chose the word art. I like that because it seems to me that there is a difference between art and science. Now, maybe that line is not as bright and sharp as sometimes people think it is, but still there is some difference between putting something in a test tube and heating it up and, and measuring it and taking a brush to hand and putting it in a paint and bringing some sort of mental image to life on a canvas. Those things are not unrelated, and there's art to science, and there's science to art, but they are still somewhat distinct. So it's interesting that you use the word art. Why that word? Yeah, another word you could put in there is skill or ability, but art gets at, I think, that nature of wisdom that it deals with such a range of things and really corresponds in that often with beauty and other aspects. And so it isn't always easy to say what is the best or the wisest because there can be a variety of things that are good in that. I think art helps to leave that creativity that is allowed still with wisdom. It's not a mechanical formula that will get you there, but it's figuring out the way to get you to your uh, end goal of living well. So there's a certain degree of subjectivity then when you're thinking about what wisdom is and, and what the wise thing to do in any given situation. In other words, I think you use the word mechanical. So there's a distinction or even a juxtaposition between art and a mechanical way of going at things. Wisdom is not something that you can figure out by putting it into a machine and typing in some numbers and setting up a formula and then hitting go and then getting wisdom. Right. Certainly not. It requires a knowledge of the world around and all of those sorts of things, but then it's, it's applying that to a situation what you need and, and what you're trying to accomplish. And so that's a very tough thing to do. So like you say, that subjective aspect to it, it is always as somebody's approach to it as a subject and as they are seeing what is there and bringing their ability to bear on the situation. Because there is this subjective element to wisdom, is it the case that wisdom may require different things in different circumstances? There's a variety to wisdom. For example, sometimes wisdom requires us to answer a fool according to his folly, and sometimes wisdom requires us not to answer a fool according to his folly. Right. That's the specific text I was thinking of. Yeah. Wisdom, especially as we think of Proverbs and such, they don't give everything at one time. That's why right around that same text in Proverbs 26, you have a proverb in the mouth of a fool is useless. He may know the proverb, but that doesn't actually benefit him because he needs to know how to apply it, in which situation and in which way. So certainly that question of answering the fool, I think rightly the author there of the book of Proverbs, he's put them together to make you think about this, this thing that somewhat seems contradictory, but then you have to uh, ponder how they can be joined together and in which way you would answer and when you wouldn't. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And so sometimes the circumstances are such that you'll end up doing one thing, and sometimes the circumstances are such that you'll end up doing something else. And there's no way to tell necessarily ahead of time exactly how it's going to come out. And yet, arguably, they're both wise decisions. I always love the sports analogy. 
as you're dribbling down the court. It's very much your skill as a player and your reading of the situation. You aren't going to come down and run the same play every time. You're going to read what's there, what options they give you, what's the best way to get to your goal of scoring a basket. And so that very similar with wisdom as far as living well. If wisdom tells you that if Shaquille O'Neal is standing in the middle of the key and you or I, a mere mortal, wisdom says you probably don't want to challenge him directly. Take a jump shot. (laughs) You might get crushed. Proverbs 26 says, like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So sometimes the fool needs to be rebuked so that he doesn't become puffed up. Sometimes a fool is such that it's a waste of breath and energy and casting pearls before swine to respond to him. Right. I think one important element to see in that text is the two parts that are different is you're not to answer the fool when it is in your own interest. You are to answer the fool when it's your concern for him. And I think that's a helpful thing to see there. If you're answering a fool in order to make yourself seem wise and such, then you will seem like him. You will be like him. Well, then we descend into foolishness and we become fools with him. Very much. But yeah, if we have genuine concern for his folly and the errors and what will happen, um, is there a hope of him turning? And that would be another part of how you would decide. And that is, as they say, a judgment call. Very much so. Which is difficult. And on which two people looking at the same situation may come to different conclusions. And we might not be able to say definitively that this person is absolutely, obviously, clearly wrong, and this person is absolutely, clearly, obviously correct. Certainly. So there's an inherent ambiguity in this business of wisdom. Yeah, I think that fits with the definitions and even, you know, the analogies with other things like sports and such, that uh, there can be multiple ways to get at the same goal. If a guy pulls up and takes a 35-foot jumper, it's foolish unless it goes in. Wow. <laughs> and the coach stands up and says, no, no, okay. <laughs> he, he, he still might get after him. He might, Just yeah. so he doesn't do it again. Okay, so the word for wisdom, the, the principal word for wisdom, and I'll let you pronounce it since you're the Hebrew prof, is? Chokmah. Chokmah. And it's used frequently in Scripture, and it's used in a variety of ways. So give us a sense of the way that word is used. So that's at that basic, that idea of success. And it starts with physical ability. Hokma is given to those that are working on the uh, tabernacle. And so their ability to work in bronze and gold and all of that is... So that has the idea of skill then. Right, exactly. Very much that skill idea. But then it can be brought up to mental abilities. And so it's that ability to reach the goal that you're after. And in that, it doesn't have to be an ethical goal. We find it used even of wrong ends. But those who are able to to succeed where they're trying to, they can still be described as having hokma or being hacham, wise. And so that, I would say, gets at most of the occurrences. And so there are different kinds of wisdom or different aspects to wisdom. 
Right. I think you could say you have what the term means itself, but then Proverbs, as it communicates it, it defines a, a concept of wisdom for us. And it posits as the basis the fear of the Lord. And that means that uh, the wisdom for the book of Proverbs starts then and there with a right acknowledgement of our creatureliness before our Creator. Whereas it can still, as it's doing that, still see wisdom elsewhere. That there is this relative wisdom, if we want to put that in that terms, uh, of the nations round about. And so the book of Proverbs, we have a number of them that probably come from uh, an Egyptian work or are very similar to it. And they still are these words of wisdom, true Proverbs, but we wouldn't say the Egyptian writer had ultimate wisdom in that because he uh, was not operating in the fear of the Lord. You know, another good example is Solomon. He's not said to be the only wise king, but the wisest. So there certainly were other wise kings, but they wouldn't have been worshipers of Yahweh. Only Solomon was. And yet he can still compare because of that relative wisdom versus ultimate wisdom. So there's wisdom, according to Scripture, available to unbelievers uh, via nature, via uh, reason, via paying attention to the way things are. Certainly. Yeah. And that's genuine, real wisdom. And historically, traditionally, in Christian theology, we've distinguished between nature or creation and grace or redemption. And so for those who have been given new life by the Spirit and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they ought to have this creational wisdom, but they've been given, we hope, another kind of wisdom or at least or on their way to accumulating or receiving another kind of wisdom. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, it's very much that foundational level of how you relate to God. That submission, I would say, uh, is that key element. Are you autonomous or are you— What does that mean, autonomous? What Define that for us. Are you in this world as your own master, looking at the world as your own judge and following your own rules? As if you were a law unto yourself, correct. rather than beginning with God as your creator, God as your redeemer, and your sovereign, right? Correct. As your king. Correct. And the one whose rules and laws you need to follow. And so, in a sense, someone could have creational wisdom, natural wisdom, but not having really recognized God in a saving way fully for who and what he is and himself for the sinner that he is, he lacks this kind or that particular kind of wisdom. Yeah. I mean, another way we could maybe say that is he hasn't fully grasped even everything that nature reveals because nature shows enough that he should be submissive. He should know his creatureliness and the glory of God and his power. I mean, he should be able to look around and see that everybody that walks on two feet and looks like we do dies and that life is hard and that life is broken and... And that there is something more, that he has that eternity in his heart. And Paul says that we can see those kinds of things. We can see from nature that God is and that we're accountable to him. Right. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California. 
wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Okay, so I promised at the beginning that we would connect this to Abraham. Now, the word, as far as I was able to tell, the noun, chokmah, does not occur in Genesis. I didn't do a search, so I must admit. I did, and I couldn't find it. I'll trust your searching. Well, at least the computer. (laughs) So the computer says it's not there. But I wanted to look, uh, beginning with Abraham, at a series of, well, at the patriarchs, to see what we could learn from them and other biblical figures about the nature of wisdom so that we're looking at concrete, particular examples. And so, as we sort of transition to Abraham, help us get oriented to his life. Uh, Everybody sort of knows a little bit about Abraham, but they might not know what are we talking about when we say he was from Ur of the Chaldees, uh, what's his significance, when did he live, and why is Abraham important to Christians? Well, the date issue is always a little difficult. In general, you can nicely say that David reigned about thousand and Abraham was maybe around 2000 uh, BC. In rough terms, you could go Abraham 2000, Moses 1500, give or take. I mean, there's debate about that. And David 1000, right. the exile, and then the New Testament. So you almost have stuff, really important things happening about every 500 years, beginning with Abraham. Yeah. Okay, so 2000. So almost like a bookend to us, because here we are 2000 and some after the incarnation. Correct. Yes. So 4000 years ago. So where on a modern map might someone look to find Ur of the Chaldees? Ur of the Chaldeans was down there in modern-day Iraq in the the southeastern part. But it was Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, and called out of there by God to come to a land he'd never seen, a land that God would show him. And they stop at Haran on the way, but uh, eventually Abraham continues on. And there are, even today, uh, Christians, and we have a a population of Christians here in San Diego County who identify as Chaldean Christians, now many of whom have been forced to flee from Iraq because of the turbulence and and violence and so forth in in recent years. Okay, so he's from what we know as Iraq, 2,000 years uh, before Christ, and why is he so significant to Christians? Why should Christians care about this guy who lived 2,000 years before Jesus? Don't we just want to talk about Jesus and the New Testament and, and all that stuff? Well, Abraham shows us. He asked the Old Testament professor. (laughs) That's right. I'm arguing for my job here. We look to Abraham because Abraham in many ways tells us about Christ. He is, uh, as God is continuing the history of Revelation, he's expounding more and more. And what we find with Abraham is now that seed promised way back to Adam and Eve, we know it will be from Abraham. And as it's expounded, Abraham, we think of him as this man of faith. But as we read the text, we see very much he had to grow in that faith and what was involved in it. Uh, But certainly, he has that initial response. He's called to leave everything, go to a place he's never seen, and he does. He follows. But then he missteps in many ways as these promises are given, uh, but God in his grace leads him on. And uh, in many ways, he sanctifies him through this process as he causes his faith to grow. And he learns of what it means to be in relationship with God as God reveals his demands that he has of uh, what obedience uh, should flow from this faith. Let's look at a couple of instances in Abraham's life, since we sort of have the the bookends of the beginning and the end. 
as we think about an episode, and there's probably more than one in the life of Abraham, but as you think about an episode that illustrates Abraham's foolishness, what do you think of? One episode where we could uh, see this illustrated is with Hagar, when Abraham cooks up this scheme with Sarah to get at what's been promised, but in their own way. And in that, it seems to have that uh, um, semblance of wisdom. It uh, has what we might call that relative wisdom. They need a child, and it doesn't seem like Sarah's going to have a child, and so they need to find another way. And so Sarah says, hey, here's my maidservant, Hagar. Why don't we have a child through her, and we'll claim it as mine. And so they do that. But God shows that they haven't been following in faith in that as they try to do it under their own strength, that part of his purposes in Abraham is to show his grace and his power, even in this miraculous child that was the child of promise. So it seemed like a wise thing to do. It seemed like a practical thing to do. It might even have been perceived as a skillful thing to do. But in this instance... Right, it's foolish. And another one along the same line would be Abraham's little arrangement with Sarah that wherever they go, she's to say that I'm his sister. Which again, why would Abraham ask her to do that? I mean, she's a beautiful woman. She's his wife. Is he embarrassed? What's the deal? Abraham's afraid that wherever he goes, that they will be covetous of his wife and thereby want to uh, kill him in order to take her as their own wife. And so he instead says, you're my sister. And by that also, he will get favors wherever he goes, that they will shower gifts upon him as in many ways they're pursuing marriage relations with Sarah. So he does it when he goes down to Egypt right away in uh, chapter uh, 12, and uh, then we get it later with Abimelech in uh, chapter 20, I do believe. And both times, it's the Lord who has to stand in, partly because what Abraham has done, he's maybe saved his skin, and he's maybe gained some possessions, but he's also endangered by that his wife, who we find is going to be the one that that seed is going to come from. And so God has to intervene. He intervenes both times to extricate Abraham. And so it may have seemed to have some wisdom to it that he was trying to do this, but it was deceptive. And so his motivations weren't right. And it certainly was not an act of faith. When it comes to fulfilling God's promises and of establishing and building his kingdom in this earth, wisdom often calls us to act in ways that don't necessarily seem obvious to us. So that in temporal things, in practical things, there's a sort of shared common wisdom that we have with all kinds of people. But when it comes to spiritual things, wisdom is of a different order. And you see that pretty clearly in Abraham's life, right? We've looked at a couple of episodes. What about the rescue of Lot and his family? I wondered whether it is uh, helpful to think about Abraham negotiating with the Lord in light of wisdom. Do you think there's any connection there? Well, certainly he's showing himself skillful in his choice of words as he approaches God and as he appeals to his attributes and what they imply for his conclusions that God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so in his negotiations, he starts high and and then moves low (laughs) by little increments. It is a very sort of earthy narrative, isn't it? I mean, 
every time, I, who knows how many times I've read that story in Genesis 18, beginning in verse 22, and yet every time I read it, it is still a kind of bracing, shocking narrative because of this business of Abraham negotiating with God. And still, God honors this, which is equally shocking in its own way. You, you sort of expect sometimes the Lord to say, you know, knock it off, Abraham. This is not how I relate to you or you should relate to me. Yeah. And it really, in the narrative, it builds up for how bad it really was in Sodom and Gomorrah. As you get down lower and lower and your expectations get raised that maybe it will be saved here. And then the shocking scene as they go down. But I would say, yeah, God is very accommodating in that to Abraham as he negotiates with him. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And the ultimate example of wisdom, I suppose, in Abraham's life is, as Hebrews 11 says, he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Ultimately, if your hope is set on this life, and Abraham had plenty of this life, right? We might not be aware, the listener might not be entirely aware of how wealthy, how influential Abraham was in his own world. Can you paint us a little picture of that? Well, we could uh, just to jump back to when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were attacked, and uh, it's by a coalition of kings, and they, uh, they, will, they defeat them, and Lot's taken with them. And he, with the men in his household, uh, along with a, a few allies he has uh, from where he lives, is able to go out and defeat these kings. Now, we don't want to take away that God was with him and the battle uh, belonged to the Lord in that, but uh, it certainly showed him as this man of power that he almost has a whole clan that belongs to him. He's a very wealthy fellow. We're very familiar with Abraham, and we think of him as a man of faith, but in his own setting, he is very wealthy, has a large household, and still, as Hebrew says, he's looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, which in some ways is the ultimate act of wisdom to see that this life is not it, that there's more. Certainly. And that's where we get back to that Proverbs and the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, that really translates into New Testament faith as the beginning of wisdom. But Abraham understood that uh, God's promises were greater than than everything he could see, and by that, uh, he was looking to more. And so as we progress through his life, we see him growing in that till you get to the end Mm -hmm. and his willingness to sacrifice Isaac as the final step of showing his growth in faith, as the book of Hebrews says that he was confident that God could raise him from the dead. Which, from an earthly point of view, seems like a foolish thing to do, right? This is the firstborn. This is the one. Correct. Right? He's the seed of promise. Yeah, he's the seed of promise. And so if you're going to have a dynasty of any sort, it's hard to do that and kill him. And so it's paradoxical that the Lord says, listen, take him up the mountain, bind him up like you would, right? A ram, a sacrifice, and then do this unthinkable thing. I mean, as a parent, right, what's your first instinct? Do you hear a noise in the night? What's your first instinct? It's to protect your kid, right? Something comes over you as a parent. You begin looking at the world in a very different way. I know I did as a parent, you know, walking through the mall, holding onto your kids. You know, they've got a hold of your index finger and toddling along. And things that once seemed benign now seem a little more threatening. 
And so it's completely against our inclination and our nature to voluntarily jeopardize the life of our child. No, I would say you can you can see that as the pinnacle of other instances. In many ways, the call to leave everything right at the beginning is something that many would have said sounds very foolish. What are you doing? You don't know this land. You haven't seen this land. What are you uh, trying to do? You, you maybe have a good life here. But Abraham stepped out and followed that in faith. So sometimes wisdom is what philosophers call counterintuitive, doing something that doesn't seem obviously a practical or wise thing to do. And this is where we have our different levels, you could say, of of wisdom. Abraham is showing that ultimate level in that what is ultimately wise, what is ultimately leading to that good life is obedience to God's commandments, God's calls, and following him in faith. Whereas looking at it uh, without any special revelation of God, the situation we, we would assess it differently. Jesus has this cryptic statement in argument with the Jews in John 8, right? They're arguing about who are the true heirs of Abraham. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, as you claim to be, you would believe in me because Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. You're not Abraham's children. You're the children of someone else. That little mention in 856 is very tantalizing. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. A lot of Christians don't necessarily think of Abraham having a specific faith in Jesus. Help us make that connection. Well, he's the ultimate seed in that. And what Abraham was shown, and we could see it in various ways. Uh, People have tied it with the covenant in Genesis 15, the rite of circumcision, but then even more so with his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, that uh, in these ways we have foreshadowed what the seed would do to really inherit the promises. Because those promises given to Abraham, they're ultimately to Christ uh, as he He earns the people and the land uh, through his work as he comes. So Abraham, in that, through what was shown him, God promising to complete these things and bring them about, uh, could look and see Jesus in his day. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.